Continuing our look and study through the life of David here in First and soon to be Second Samuel. Come to the twenty seventh chapter. Follow along as I read. And David said in his heart, Now I shall perish some day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me that than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines, and Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel, so I shall escape out of his hand. And then David arose and went over with the six hundred men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, the king of Gath. And so David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Anoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, and so he sought him no more. And then David said to Achish, If I have now found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? And so Achish gave him Ziglag that day, and therefore Ziglag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. And David and his men went up and raided the Gerzites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for those nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as you go to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. And whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep and the oxen and the donkeys and the camels and the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. And then Achish would say, Where have you made a raid today? And David would say, Against the southern area of Judah, or against the southern area of the Jermelites, or against the southern area of the Kenites. And David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, Lest they should inform on us, saying, Thus David did. And thus was his behavior all the time that he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. And so Achish believed David, saying, He had made his people of Israel utterly abhor him. Therefore, he will be my servant forever. As we come to chapter 27 of 1 Samuel, we see a major setback in the life of David. He's been going through a very long trial, and it has been a good over three years now since he first left uh, there, the, the palace and Saul and has become a fugitive, running around in the wilderness and hiding out in caves and, and living out in the desert. And, and David is here at this point where we see him descending into the depths of depression and he's really discouraged. And so he says here in his heart, I'm going to perish one day by the hand of Saul, so I might as well join the forces of Achish, the king of Gath of the Philistines. In other words, what David was saying is, I am going to try and find my refuge in the world because I just can't handle this anymore. Now, wait a minute, you're saying, haven't we seen this before? Didn't David do this once already? And the answer is yes. In chapter 21, three years earlier, when he first fled from Saul, when he first became a fugitive, David panicked and he ran to Gath. And he was thinking, I'll find refuge there in the world. And he comes there to Gath, but the Philistines were suspicious of David. I mean, after all, this was the man 
who killed Goliath, their champion, who was also from Gath. And so they're like, I don't know if we want this guy around. And David gets wind of it. And so he starts to act insane. He starts to act like a madman. He's foaming at the mouth. He's scratching at the dirt. And Achish, the king, says, I've got enough crazy people around here. I don't need another one. So he sends David on his way. And David escapes. And he goes out into the wilderness. Now here we see David three years later. And he's coming right back. Why would David go back to this place that he had fled from before? Let me ask you this question. Why do you go back to the places or things that you once left behind? We go back to the places or things that we once left behind because our memories are faulty. We remember the kicks, but we forget the kickbacks. Israel, this was their problem. They were in the wilderness and they, they had just went through 400 years of slavery there in Egypt. And now they've been set free. They're out in the wilderness and, and they're, having, they're going through a difficult time. It's a little bit tough. And they start saying, you know, remember Egypt, man, we had melons and we had great food and it was a great place to be. And we want to go back to Egypt. They start singing that song. They were slaves in Egypt. They were suffering in Egypt for 400 years to the point where they just were crying out to God. It was so bad, but they had had forgotten the hard times, and that's how we are. We remember the good times, how great something was, and we forget the consequences. Thanksgiving Day in my home was a great day. Family was there, some friends from the church were there, and, and we had just great food and just a great time. And, and I have a theory as it relates to Thanksgiving that you always have to leave room for dessert. Because that's where, you know, the really good stuff is. And so, I mean, I like turkey, but I, all through the meal, it's like I pick, you know, at all this stuff. I taste everything, but I'm thinking ahead, dessert, man. That's what I'm, you know, waiting for. And we had cookies and candy, and, and I was actually munching on that stuff before dinner, dinner even started. But, but after dinner, my wife made this incredible chocolate cream pie, and I had a huge piece. Now... I have to watch eating sweets. As much as I talk about them and like them, I have to watch because it really kind of wigs me out. It does something to me. I get very, very lethargic and it kind of knocks me out and I get tired and depressed. And so usually I eat them at night because it's great for me to to go to bed. It just puts me to sleep, you know. So after dinner, I have this huge piece of this uh, chocolate cream pie. And 10 minutes after eating it, my head is spinning. I've got this massive headache. And I had to just lay down. We were playing games. and I couldn't even play. I was just out of it. And so I'm, you know, I got my head on the couch. I'm just laying down. I'm like, oh, you know, I feel, you know, horrible. And, and the whole next day, I, I felt lousy the whole day. But you know what? Christmas dinner. <laughs> I'll do the same thing all over again. Because by that time, I will have forgotten Thanksgiving dinner, you know, I will have forgotten that that piece of pie. And that's how we are with sin and compromise. We forget. We forget the, the bad times. We forget the difficult times. And so David is here in this place, in this pressure situation. He's tired and he's frustrated and he decides, I'm going back to Gath. I'm going back to the world. Now, we should also note that this happened right after David had a tremendous victory. 
Chapter 26 is really a repeat of chapter 24, where David had an open opportunity to kill Saul. David's out there in the wilderness and Saul comes and camps in his backyard. And that night, David, one of his men said, let's go down and get him. And David says, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed, but why don't we go down and let's see, you know, what we might do. And so he sneaks down into the camp and Saul's asleep. And David takes his spear that was by his, his head and his jug of water. And he sneaks back out. And in the morning, he calls out. And he says, look, Saul, you know, I have your spear. I could have shoved it through your head, but I didn't do that. And, and I have your jug of water. And Saul wants Once again, just like in chapter 24, he's convicted by David's kindness. And Saul says, I've played the fool. And David, you need to forgive me. And Saul then goes home for a while. But note this. This chapter 27 happens after this moment of victory in David's life where he could have done in Saul. He could have done the wrong thing, but he doesn't give in to that that temptation. And we need to make note of this because oftentimes after a great moment of victory, we are more vulnerable to discouragement and depression. We're more vulnerable to greater attacks from the enemy after we've had a great victory. Take Jesus. There at his baptism, I mean, it's a high point in his life up to that point. It's a great moment as the, he comes up out of the water and the Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove. And then there's the voice of the Father who says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It's a great moment. Immediately after that, we're told, the Spirit led him into the wilderness where he fasted and prayed and was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Take Elijah, who has his great, great victory there on Mount Carmel against the 450 prophets of Baal. And the people are turning and they're praising God and they're all excited because God has shown himself to be the true God over Baal. But then Jezebel, the queen, says to Elijah that she's going to have his head. And so what does he do? He panics. He gets depressed. He gets fearful. He starts thinking, I'm the only prophet left. And he flees. He runs to the wilderness. And, he, and as he's running, he, you know, he's telling God, just kill me. After this great moment of, of victory there on Mount Carmel, he's fretting and fearing. And the same thing can happen to us after great moments where God has worked in our life, after maybe being at a retreat where we have this mountaintop experience, and then we come down the mountain, and there Satan is there. He's waiting for us, and he wants to discourage us and get us depressed, and he turns up the heat. And so this is what happens to David. David is worn out. He's discouraged. He's tired because of the length of his trial. I mean, it's been uh, over Three years now that he's been living uh, like a a rabbit being chased around the wilderness. And he makes this huge mistake in verse 1 when it says that David said in his heart. Note that. David was a man who was known for talking to God. bringing, Bringing praise before God. Communing with God. But now David is talking to himself. I was in the gym the other day in the locker room and... A guy was in there talking to himself. The scary thing was, is he was, himself was talking back to him. That's what David is doing here. He's talking to himself. He said in his heart, it was a huge mistake. There was a Christian music group several years ago that had this catchy little tune. And the chorus of it said, listen to your heart. And it was a neat song, but the theology wasn't so good. It's kind of that slogan of today, just follow your heart. But the, our hearts can get us into all kinds of 
of problems. Listen to what the Bible says about our hearts. In Jeremiah 17, verse 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? In Mark 7, verse 21, it says, For out of a person's heart come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and greed and wickedness and deceit and eagerness for lustful pleasure and envy and slander and pride and foolishness. That's what's in our hearts. That's what our hearts are capable of. And David here listens to his heart. He follows his heart. And the result is disastrous because David's heart tells him in verse 1 that someday he's going to perish at the hand of Saul. And so when David looked at this situation, he was looking at it strictly from a horizontal point of view. He was seeing it only on the human plane and David completely ignores and forgets the promises that God had made to him. He was looking at this situation purely from a human perspective, reasoning and rationalizing in his heart and the outlook looked dreary. But God had already through Samuel, through Jonathan, through Abigail, as we saw last week, and even through Saul twice, God had already confirmed and reminded David that he was destined to be the next king over Israel. It was only a matter of time. That was the promise of God to David. But David's heart was deceiving him, saying to him that he was going to perish, that Saul was going to to kill him. And so as the pressure gets turned up, David forgets the promises of God and he listens to his heart. I'm coaching once again my daughter's basketball team, my daughter Amy. Group of 11 and 12 year old girls. She's she's gone up to the next division now. Now they're playing on the 10 foot baskets instead of the eight on the big court. And we've been practicing the last couple of weeks, getting ready for our first game, which was yesterday. And we've been working on our defense because, you know, the, the basket is, is big and the court is big and the girls are small and they, they can't shoot the 20-footer. And so, you know, I've been telling them, we want the other team to shoot outside. You know, just stand there and say, go ahead, shoot, you know, take a shot, free shot. We want them to do that, but we don't want them to get into the what they call the paint or the key. It's that painted area right underneath the basket. We want to keep them out of there. We call it our house. And I've told them, nobody gets into your house. And I asked these girls, like, how many, how many of you have little brothers or have a brother? And, you know, they're like this. And how many of you like them? And, and they're like, they don't like them. And they're like this. And I said, well, just when somebody gets in the, the, the paint there with that basketball, just pretend the basketball is your brother, you know, and just, you know, smack it, you know. <laughs> I know that was mean, but they got the point. They, they, they liked it. <laughs> So yesterday we had a practice before our game, and, and they looked like all-stars, man. I mean, they were just together. They were tight. We were covering, you know, the paint. And then we get to the game, and there's the fans and the crowd and mom and dad, and everybody's yelling. The pressure is on, and they forgot everything. My center is out at half court, you know, guarding the guard. The, the paint area is wide open, and they're scoring layups on us. And we got spanked bad, you know. It was just a, a bad day. Well, that's what happens here to David. This is what he's doing here. He totally forgets about the promise of God and he makes a very bad and selfish decision. Notice again in verse one, he says, there is nothing better. And I want you to circle these two words for me to do than to escape to the land of the Philistines. 
Why was this a selfish decision? You see, when David makes this decision, it not only affects him, but it affects the 600 men who are with him and all of their families. When David steps into this area of compromise to go into the world, he takes with him a whole bunch of other people. And that's one of the things about compromise. It affects you, but it also affects those who are around you. A person might say to themselves, you know what? I know this isn't what the Lord wants me to do, but I'm, I'm willing to take the risk. I'm willing to take my lumps. I'm willing to deal with the effects that, that these actions might have on my life. But the problem is most of the time it doesn't just involve or affect you. It affects your spouse if you're married. It affects your kids. It affects your family members. If you're a young person, it affects your mother or father. It affects your friends in the Lord, your brothers and and sisters in Christ. And many of us have had that horrible experience of, of sitting up at night and just crying in agony over a brother or sister who has walked away from the Lord and has ruined their family all for self. All because they said, I need to do what's right for me. In the movie Kramer versus Kramer, Meryl Streep and Dustin Hoffman, they're married they're having problems and Meryl Streep decides that, that she needs to just go out and find herself. That was the mantra, mantra you know, back then. You need to find. So that's what she's going to do. She's going to leave their, her husband and her child and go off and find herself. And one of her friends comes to Dustin Hoffman and says, you know, she's really doing a, a brave thing here. And he responds by saying, since when is leaving your husband and, and your eight-year-old son an act of bravery? But so often that is the mentality of so many people today is I need to do what is right for me. And they're, they're, they're choosing happiness over holiness, failing to realize that, that happiness comes with holiness. So we're walking upright before the Lord. And so when David runs to the world, there's several things that happen here that really are a parallel for our for our lives, And I want you to note five ways that, that this action that David took, the effect that it had upon him, and see the parallel for our own lives. First of all, we see that Saul lets up in his pursuit of David. Verse 4, it says, And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, and so he sought him no more. Now this would seem, you know, at first like a good thing. Hey, Saul's not chasing me anymore. Saul had been seeking him every day for three years. Saul had made it his mission. I want to go and find David. And it's hard to not see ourselves in this situation. If you are a committed Christian, and I stress the word committed there, the enemy is after you. Your life is under attack. We are in a spiritual battle. Paul said we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the forces of the enemy, the principalities and the rulers of darkness in this world, Satan and his cohorts. That's the battle that we are in. Alan Redpath had this to say in his book, The Making of a Man of God. He said, the committed man of God is against sin, and therefore all of the powers of evil are against him. In such a warfare, there is no intermission at all, and the devil never takes a vacation. Now, our tendency a lot of times when we hear statements like that is to think, you know, I don't know if the devil's so much interested in me. 
mean, Chuck Smith and Billy Graham, people like that, I mean, they're, they're making an impact. I could see why he would be interested in them, but I'm just a housewife, or I'm just a gardener, I'm just a, you know, whatever, and, and, and we can think like that. Again, Redpath is helpful. Listen to what he says. He says, the devil is not interested so much in you as an individual, but he hates he who lives within you and everything that he stands for. The devil hates you not so much because of who you are, but because of who lives inside of you. And he knows that Satan knows if he can bring you down, he's going to hurt Jesus. If he can bring you down, if he can get you to compromise, if he can get you to do something that's going to ruin your life or ruin your family or do something along those lines, he, that it's going to cause grief to Jesus. And, and if he can get you to do something that's going to keep you from being a witness and, and making an impact for Jesus, that's what he wants to do. And so the moment that David turns to the world, the enemy, Saul, that was after him, Quit chasing him. And that's what happens when we compromise. When we turn to the world, the devil lets up in his attack to a certain degree. And it creates this false sense of security where somebody might say, look, I'm not depressed anymore. I'm experiencing peace. But the peace that comes from compromise is very, very deceiving. It's, it's kind of like taking drugs. It has a stupefying effect upon a person. It kind of masks the pain. It allows you to forget the pain and forget the problems for a short period of time. And so the devil lets up because he's got you right where he wants you. He knows if you remain in that area of compromise, it's only going to cause your heart to get harder and harder and harder towards the Lord. And that's what he wants. He wants you to go down that path where you're going further and further and further away from the Lord. And so he leaves you to yourself. And so the first thing that happens when David runs to the world is that Saul... His enemy quits chasing him, creating in David this false sense of security. The second thing that it results in is that David lives in submission to the enemy's cause. Notice verse 5. It says, Then David said to Achish, If I have now found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? David, the servant of Achish? David basically puts himself under Achish's authority here. Now, why did Achish accept David this time when he came? Well, the first time David came alone, he came by himself. He acted like a madman. This time he shows up with 600 fighting men, 600 mighty, he shows up with an army. And, and Saul was Achish's enemy. And the word had got out that Saul was after David. So Achish is looking at this and he's saying, okay, Saul's my enemy. Saul's David's enemy. I'd love to have David and his 600 mighty men on my side. So he invites him in. But the application for us is when we choose to lead a disobedient lifestyle, when we choose carnality over spirituality, we automatically begin to serve the adversary's cause. We automatically begin to serve our enemy's cause. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. And folks, listen, you cannot live. There is no neutral ground in the Christian life. You are either in one camp or the other. There is no neutral place. If you are not serving the Lord, then you are either directly or indirectly serving the enemy by the way that you are living your life. 
And the compromise, the carnality that you are involved in is going to have an impact on those around you. And it's going to shame the name of Jesus Christ the further, the deeper that you go into that. You can't serve two masters. The third result, when we run to the world... When we embrace that humanistic way of thinking that says, I need to live for me, is that it can result in a lengthy period of compromise. Notice verse 7, it says, David stayed in Gath for 16 months. 16 months living there in the land of the enemy. And during this 16 months, you know what? There's no record of David writing any psalms. He basically is, is out of fellowship with God. You know, I've known people who have fallen, walked away from the Lord, and, and, and two years can go by before they even realize, you know, how far they really have fallen. And David here, 16 months goes by, but it gets even worse. The fourth consequence of David's backsliding is he becomes a liar. He's basically living a double life, lying to to cover up his deeds. David and his men, you see, would go down into the southern region of Judah and attack the enemies of Israel who were the allies of the Philistines. And they would totally wipe out these cities, killing all the men, the women, and the children. So there were no witnesses, no one that could come and accuse David of doing anything. And no doubt David was trying to justify being there in Gath by doing something that seemed like it was good for Israel and good for God. And so David would go out, massacre these cities, and then he would come back to Achish, and Achish would say, where have you made a raid today? And he'd say, oh, the southern area of Judah. And Achish is assuming that he's attacking Israel, and he thinks this is a good thing. But David, at this point, is leading a double life. And when a person is leading a double life, they operate under a cloak of secrecy because they don't want to be accountable. They don't want people asking them questions. They don't want people talking to them about what they're doing or what they're not doing. And so they seek to cover all of that up. And the fifth thing that we see that happens to David during this time is he loses his identity. We'll see in our study next time in chapter 29 that the Philistines are gathered to fight against Israel. And David and his men are in the ranks. The Philistines are saying, man, we're going to go do battle against Israel. And there's David. He's right with them, with all of his men. I mean, could it be that David would fight with the Philistines against his own people? Well, we'll see what happens next time. But David becomes a man without a country, a man without a purpose, a man who has lost his identity. And that is a sure sign that you have stepped over that line into compromise, into carnality, is when we start wondering, why am I here? What is my purpose? What is my mission in life? Where am I going? What is all this stuff about that I've believed for so long? Who is my allegiance to? David is facing a real identity crisis. And it all started... When David said in his heart, when David listened to his heart, when David followed his heart. Maybe you are here today and the pressures of life have been just pressing in upon you. Maybe you've lost your job recently. 
Maybe there's something going on in your, your family that is just a, a, a difficult crisis or difficult situation and and you feel like you're in the pressure cooker and it's just coming down upon you and you have forgotten the promise of God and you've been listening to your heart and your heart has been saying run to the world go back to the old things go back to gath go back to to the drinking go back to you know whatever it was go back to that thing once again and you've been contemplating that Would you consider this morning the consequences, the effect that that those actions will have upon you, but not just upon you, but upon your family, upon your friends, upon the name of Christ, as others who know you as a Christian see you in that light and just the, the shame that that would bring to the name of Christ? Oh, Satan's attack might let up. You might experience some temporary peace, but he's got you right where he wants you to be. Heading down that road where you are just going further and further away from the Lord and his plan for you. Do you really want to go from serving God to serving Satan? Are you ready to lose your identity? Do you want to live a double life? Trying to act one way around Christian brothers and sisters and a whole nother way around the world and trying to cover up for all of your actions. Listen, Jesus came to be your victory. He came to to give you victory. Yes, there's a peace that comes from compromise. But it's a peace that is only temporary as that pressure lifts only for a moment, a week, a two or two or three, a year, perhaps. But it doesn't even compare to the peace that comes from overcoming through the power of Christ in your life as you look to him. It's been said that God can fix a broken heart, but only if we give him all of the pieces. Would you give him today your heart that is bruised? Your heart that is broken. Your heart that is battered. Will you come in complete surrender and just say, Father, forgive me for even contemplating. Or, or if, if you've crossed the line, for crossing that line and, and going back to that place. Father, forgive me. Have mercy upon me. And he will. He'll meet you there in that place. Instead of listening to your heart, listen to him. Before we go, I want us to look and make a contrast with what David does here in 1 Samuel 27 with something that we see in Jesus, the son of David, Jesus, our Lord and our Messiah. You know, as I look at the life of our Lord, I I am just amazed because he encountered many discouraging things. People forsook him. His disciples denied him. Crowds, they didn't understand him. Religious leaders who hated him and wanted to kill him. But despite that constant squirrel that deemed him as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, despite all of that, Jesus was never depressed. And although the demands that were upon him were great and from a human perspective, I mean, they were just huge. And there were crowds who were always pressing in upon him and people who were demanding of him. He couldn't even get away with his disciples without crowds, huge crowds following him. But what's interesting, you never see him stressed. 
You never see him overwhelmed. And although the enemy was always after him, never letting up, he never gives in to the temptation. Why was Jesus so together? We're told in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, that he was anointed with oil, the oil of gladness, more than his fellows. In other words, that there was a joy and a gladness about him that was unparalleled, that of any other person. What was his secret? I believe that we are given insight into the secret of Jesus' life in five statements that he makes in the Gospel of John in chapter 5. I want you to turn there, and I want to just briefly look at these statements. The scene there in the Gospel of John is Jesus is at the pool of Bethsaida. He heals a man who's been sick for 38 years. And instead of rejoicing that this man who's been ill for 36 years is now healed, the religious leaders are upset that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. And so they confront him. And what transpires from verse 17 through the end of the chapter is a series of statements where Jesus basically puts himself on the same plane as God, which makes the religious leaders even more mad. They're even more incensed at him. But in these series of statements, Jesus describes five things about his relationship with his father that I think gives us great insight into the secret of his life. It gives us great insight if we can seek to make these five things our focus will help us to be more like Jesus and less like David, listening to the father instead of listening to our hearts. What are these statements? Well, first of all, Jesus sought to be a reflection of his father. Verse 17, Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now and I have been working. Jesus says, look, my father works and I work. I just do what I see the father doing. I'm just a reflection of my father. You know what? Jesus wants us to be a reflection of him. John 8, he declared, I am the light of the world. But then in Matthew chapter 5, he says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. And we are lights in this world, kind of like the moon is a light in the sky. For you see, the moon has no light in and of itself. But the light that the moon gives forth is merely a reflection of the sun. And that's what we are. The light that we give forth, there's no light in and of ourselves, but it is that light that we give forth as a reflection of Jesus Christ who lives in us. And, and so Jesus would say to his disciples, let your light so shine before men in such a way that they would see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. So that when people look at you and I at the place where you work, at the business maybe that you operate or at the company that you work for, the neighborhood that you live in, as people look at you, as they look at me, they should see something starkly different from that of the world. As they look at us, They should say, you know, I've never worked for anybody like this before. I've never worked with anybody like this before. There's something different about that guy. There's something different about that girl. I can't pinpoint it, but the more they get to know you, the more that they begin to understand that it's God living in you. It's God working in you. And as they see your light, it causes them to give glory to God. So Jesus sought to, first of all, be a reflection of his father, Number two, verse 19, Jesus lived his life dependent upon his father. Verse 19, then Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself 
but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. Jesus says here, I can do nothing of myself. Jesus lived his life completely dependent upon his heavenly father. That was one of the points of the incarnation. That was one of the things he did in leaving heaven and coming to earth and taking on a human body was that he caused his deity to be concealed in his humanity and Jesus lived a life completely dependent upon his heavenly father and it was most seen in his prayer life. Jesus was a man of prayer. On the night before he was to choose his disciples, what does he do? He spends the whole night in prayer. Father, show me. Show me which ones that you want me to pick. Which 12 guys that you want me to impart myself into for these next three and a half years so that they can impact the world. And he spent the whole night, we're told, in prayer. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus goes into a certain town. He, he touches Peter's mother who was sick. Everybody else brings all their sick people there to the house. And he's healing people blind and lame all day long and on into the night. And that night he goes to bed. In the morning, he gets up, we're told, a great while before the sun even came up. And he goes into a secret place. Why? He goes to pray. I mean, here's a moment or a time that Jesus could have easily got caught up in the moment. Everybody's after him. Everybody's looking for him. They come the next day. Where's Jesus? We don't know where he's at. And he's off in this secret place, and he's praying, and he's seeking the Lord. Father, you're doing a great work here. It's an awesome thing. But what do you want me to do next? Do I stay here? Do I continue on here? Do you want me to minister here? And the father tells him it's time to go to the next towns. I want you to go to another place. So instead of getting caught up in the moment, he goes off and he leaves that great situation that was happening there and moves to another situation where God would seek to use him. How's your prayer life? How do you go about making decisions? For your life and for your family. Your prayer life will be the mark of how dependent you are upon the Lord. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Do you believe that? Do you seek him? Oh, I'm not talking about, you know, coming to the Lord in this type of way and saying, Father, this is what I'm going to do. And Lord, just bless it. But coming to him and saying, God. What do you want me to do? I want to listen. I want to wait. Lord, I don't want to move to the right or to the left. I don't want to go forward or backward until I know, until I've heard that you are leading in this situation. Number three, his security was in the father. Verse 20, for the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. Jesus wasn't concerned about what others thought of him. His security wasn't in the opinion of others, the love of others, but it was in his father's love. Listen, your security, you are not going to find your security in what your spouse thinks of you. You are not going to find your security in what others think of you people that you work with or people that you live by. That is not where you are going to find your security, but your security comes from knowing and believing what the Father thinks of you, that the Bible says that you are the apple of his eye, that the Bible says that his thoughts for you are more than the sand, and those thoughts are thoughts of good, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope, that he 
thinks and cares so much about you that he knows the number of hairs upon your head. And when you were at your rottenness place, that's when God made a decision to send his son to come and die on a cross for you so that you could have life and so that you could know him and so that you could live in fellowship with him. Jesus' security was in his heavenly father. And fourthly, he lived a life that was submitted to his father. Notice verse 30. He says, I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the father who sent me. Remember in the garden when Jesus was praying, what did he pray? Father, let this cup pass for me, but not my will, but your will be done. Jesus was concerned first and foremost with the father's heart, the father's will and the father's way and the father's time. That was his motivation. That's what he was concerned about. And listen, you will not listen to your heart if you are concerned about the Father's heart. You'll be less inclined to do what David did and listen to your own heart and be deceived by your own heart if you are concerned and to be seeking after the Father's heart. And then finally, number five, Jesus received validation from the Father. Verse 31. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Jesus says, hey, it's the Father. He bears witness of me. We noted already at his baptism that the the Father spoke from heaven. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, we don't hear that voice now. It'd be nice, you know, you do something, you know, neat at work and just in the way that you conduct yourself, you're glorifying, you know, God and there's a voice. They are right there in the workroom. This is my beloved son, my beloved daughter, my well pleased. That'd be great. We don't hear that, though, but we will hear that voice. And that's what we are to be living for. This should be our motivation to continue on with the Lord, to press into the Lord. As he said, there's a day coming when we are going to come before him there in heaven and he's going to open up the doors and he is going to say to us, if we have pressed on, if we've continued in our relationship with him, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter in to the joy and the rest of the Lord. And that is the validation that we need to be living for. What was the secret of Jesus's life? He sought to be a reflection of his father. He lived his life dependent upon his father, seen primarily in his prayer life. He found his security in his relationship with his father. He wasn't trying to please others, but he was seeking to please the father. He was submitted to the father so that that he wanted God's will over his own will And he got his validation from the Father. That's how the Lord desires that we would live. And if we could simply adopt that simple little mindset of Jesus, we would be a lot less likely to listen to our hearts that would lead us down a path that we would end up regretting. 
Perhaps you're here today and you have compromised. You've already crossed the line. You've went from contemplating it to going down that road already. Can I encourage you today to surrender your heart to the Lord? Can I encourage you today to say to Him, Lord, I don't want to be in this place. Turn from that sin. Turn back to the Lord. He is the God of the second chance. And he loves us so much and recognize the prize that he has for you and begin to run again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your goodness and your abounding grace. We thank you, Lord, that Even when we wander from you, you are there to draw us back. And Lord, I pray today for anybody here in this place today who has wandered from you, who because of pressure, some difficulty has went back to the old things. Lord, I pray today that they would take that step, they would make that turn, to turn from their sin and to turn to you to be restored. Thank you, Lord. You're so good to us. In Jesus' name. If you would like today to begin... A relationship with God. Maybe you've never given your life to Christ. 